Father, as we come to this book of Hebrews, and uh, Lord, we look at all of these great truths. You, you're going to take us up on this high peak, Lord, this high theological mountain where, where we can see Jesus for just who he is. Lord, up there the air is thin, and Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to just fill us and, and open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds to the truth that you would have us to see. Lord, we are so blessed to know that Christ is our Savior, and Lord, as we learn about who he is, there's, that we learn about the finality of the cross, that only you, Lord God, could, could, could take away all of our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. And so we just thank you for what you've done through Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Savior, and Lord, we want to learn more about him, and so we pray in his precious name today that you'll do just that. So teach us, Lord, uh, from your book and uh, by, the, by your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you will, turn to the book of Hebrews. Again, it will be, if you can't find Hebrews, it's there towards the book of Revelation, almost to the end of the Bible, and we'll be in chapter number one today. There are two, two commercials that are out right now. Uh, uh, vo one is voiced by Harrison Ford. And one is voiced by Julia Roberts, Roberts, and they're about nature. In fact, they're called Nature is Speaking. Now, I asked uh, David to cue one up today and let you just listen to one. You've probably heard it, but, but uh, he's going to play that, and then we'll get into our study today. Some call me nature. Others call me Mother Nature. I've been here for over four and a half billion years. 22,500 times longer than you. I don't really need people, but people need me. Yes, your future depends on me. When I thrive, you thrive. When I falter, you falter. Or worse. But I've been here for eons. I have fed species greater than you, and I have starved species greater than you. My oceans. My soil my flowing streams, my forests. They all can take you or leave you. How you choose to live each day, whether you regard or disregard me, doesn't really matter to me. One way or the other, your actions will determine your fate, not mine. I am nature. I will go on. I am prepared to evolve. Are you? Does that make you as sick as it does me? I am nature. What's the implication there? Nature is God. There is, there's nothing new under the sun. If you go to the site uh, of I Am Nature, you'll see a quote from Apuleius from the 2nd century. And listen to what he said way back in the 2nd century. 
I am nature, the universal mother, mistress of all elements, primordial child of time, sovereign over all things physical and spiritual, queen of the dead, queen also of the immortals, the single manifestation of all gods and goddesses that are. And you know what? The people that believe that kind of stuff, they believe that you and I are nothing more than accidental uh, or accidents uh, produced from some primordial slime. No wonder our world is in such a mess today. I saw, read an article the other day about a young man in London, England, who stabbed his teacher to death. You might have read the article. And right after he stabbed her to death, they, they, they were interviewing him, and listen to what he said. He said, I wasn't in shock. I was happy. I had a sense of pride. I still do. I know it's uncivilized, but I know it's incredibly, instinctively human to kill. For past generations of life, both animal and human, killing has been the route of survival. It's kill or be killed. I do not have a choice. It was kill her or commit suicide. I know the victim's family will be upset for a while, but I don't care. In my eyes, everything I've done is fine and dandy. Do you know what? If there is no creator, he's right. Everything is fine and dandy. It is the survival of the fittest. Now, it's obvious to me that Harrison Ford and Julia Roberts and this young man in London have never read the first chapter of Hebrews. Because if they did read the first chapter of Hebrews, they would see that there is a creator. And who is that creator? He's none other than Jesus Christ. And, and that means that if we have a creator, then that means that life is precious and that we are responsible to him to live according to his laws. You know, there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus Christ is. Let me, let me switch gears here for a moment. I recently read a piece of a homily by Pope Francis, and I'm not putting him down or anything. I'm going to quote him. And I'm going to tell you what he said. I'm going to give you his view on Jesus' uh, place in, in the Trinity. In, in this homily, he declared Mary to be as great or greater than Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, without Mary, there would be no Jesus Christ. I quote, I'm quoting that. Without Mary, there would be no Jesus Christ. Now, what is he implying? Who's the creator? Mary's the creator, and Jesus is the creation. And he goes on to say, quote, she suffered with him and endured her suffering at the foot of the cross. And so that makes her co-redeemer. But let me ask you something. I, I believe Mary suffered. I have no doubt she suffered. I believe a lot of people suffered that day. But did Mary have the sins of the whole world laid upon her at the cross, at the foot of the cross? No. And that makes me wonder if, if the Pope has ever really seriously studied the first three verses of Hebrews. It makes me wonder. You know, the Mormons believe that Jesus Christ is just a God among many gods. And that one day, uh, you know, if you're a good Mormon, you'll be a God just like him. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a creation of Jehovah God, that he's a lesser God. And, and so that makes me wonder if they've ever read the first three verses here in the book of Hebrews. But you know what bothers me the most? Is that in evangelical circles, there are these people that have a very skewed vision of who Jesus Christ is. I call them hyper-Trinitarianism uh, or hyper-Trinitarians. They won't say it, but their beliefs really aren't too far off of those beliefs from the Jehovah's Witnesses. They actually believe that Jesus is a creation. Now, uh, actually, they won't say that he's a creation, but they'll say that he's, they'll, in their minds, they believe that he's somehow less than Jehovah God. He's somehow less than the Father. And, and that makes me wonder. I heard one of the most popular evangelical preachers in the nation a while back talking about the Trinity. And here's the way he described it. He said, when you go to pray, you pray to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit goes and tells Jesus what you prayed, and Jesus and the Father get together and they just, this is, this is a mainstream evangelical. And they get together and they decide how they're going to answer your prayer. I can just see that happening. I mean, I prayed last night. I, I mean, I can see it happening. I prayed last night, Lord, would you get me an Indian motorcycle? <laughs> one, nicer, one nicer than Winford's. And, and the Holy Spirit went to Jesus. He said, you know, George, George wants a new motorcycle. He wants an Indian motorcycle. And they got together, and the father said, well, you know, George is smarter than that. He has a Harley, and Harleys are better motorcycles. Everybody knows that a Harley's a better motorcycle than an Indian. Now, that's silly, isn't it? But isn't it silly to, to, to see God as some kind of three-headed God? The Holy Spirit, that is not the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not three different individual persons. They're not. When you pray, you can pray to Jesus Christ, and when you're praying to Jesus Christ, you're praying to the Holy Spirit, and you're praying to the Father. You don't have three spirits in you. You have one spirit in you. It's the Spirit of Christ. And, 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 and that means that Jesus Christ is God. And so when I hear things like that, it makes me wonder, has, any, has this person really studied these first three verses here in Hebrews? Because we're going to see straight from this book today that Jesus Christ is the creator. He's the express image of God. And that means that he's almighty God. That he is Jehovah God. Now this is so important. Because the whole book of Hebrews is about the finality of the cross. About trusting in the cross. Well, when you realize who it was that died for you on that cross, it changes everything. He wasn't a creation that died for you. It was Jehovah God who died for you. It was the blood of God that dripped down that cross. And so let's pick up. Let's go here to, to verse number one right away. And in verse number one, listen to what he says in the book of Hebrews. God, God the Father, who's he speaking of here, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. I mean, God, who at various times and in various ways has spoke to us in time past by the fathers, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. 
You remember last week when we were looking at the introduction to Hebrews and we, and we were discussing the reason Paul, or the author, if you don't want to believe it's Paul, wrote this book, we, we, we discovered that he was writing to the Jews. And what was happening was this. The Jews believed that Jesus had died for their sins, but they didn't believe it was enough. And see, they were going back to the temple, and they were participating in the temple rites. They were doing circumcision. They were, they were, they were going through the purification rites. Uh, and when they sinned, they were going back to the sacrificial system. And, and to Paul, or the author of Hebrews, that was blasphemy. And so he writes this book about the finality of the cross, about the interest into, entrance into the holiest of holies for every believer. And so he begins this by saying that in various times and in various ways, he spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Now the reason he begins with the prophets is because every Jew cut their teeth on the prophets. I mean, to them, the prophets were the heroes. They were the greatest man around. I mean, they had, they had learned about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They knew all about these men. They, they loved the prophets. And so to them, to some of them, Jesus had just become one of the prophets. You remember when Jesus asked the disciples, who do they say that I am? You remember what the disciples said? They, they thought they were flattered him. What they said was, you're El they're saying that you're Elijah. Hey, isn't that great? They're saying that you're one of the prophets. I mean, they've really lifted you up uh, really high. And, and actually, Jesus was a prophet. But he wasn't just any prophet. He was the prophet spoken of by Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Go with me back to the Torah, the fifth book of the Torah, the book of the law, and look back, the fifth book of your Bible, and look back in Deuteronomy, and look at verse, chapter 18, and look at verse 15, the fifth book of the Bible, chapter 18, Deuteronomy, verse 15. Moses is prophesying here. Moses was a great prophet. And he's prophesying here. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, uh, from your brethren, that you shall hear. In other words, you shall hear him more than any other prophet. I mean, Moses was the, maybe the greatest prophet other than Jesus Christ. And, and he says, him you shall hear. Now, in Jesus' day, some of the Jews thought that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of, of uh, this prophecy by Moses. They thought that he was the prophet. But, but only Jesus could fulfill what's being said right here. I mean, Jesus isn't co-equal with the prophets. He's infinitely greater than all the prophets. And, and, and so uh, he's different from the rest of the prophets. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us in, in the book of Hebrews. Now... You remember what John, who many would say was the greatest prophet who ever lived, John the Baptist, you remember what he had to say about Jesus? I'm unworthy to unlatch his sandals. He's so much greater than me. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when, 
when there was Jesus transfigured in all in his glory, and then there was Moses transfigured in his glory, and Elijah transfigured in his glory, and Peter, you know, Peter, not knowing what he said, always said something. But uh, remember what Peter said, Lord, it's good to be here. Let us build three tabernacles. We'll build one for you and, and, and move over, Lord. We're going to build one for Moses, and we're going to build one for Elijah. And what happened? A voice came down out of heaven, and it was the Father. The Father said, this is the one you should hear. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He's the prophet spoken of by Moses. He's greater than all the prophets. And that's the first thing that Paul says here in the book of Hebrews in chapter number one. So go back to Hebrews. And he says, God, picking up again, let's read it again. God, who is at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, did you catch that? These last days spoken to us by his son. Who's his son? Jesus Christ, who's greater than all the prophets. Now, here's what I want you to see for just a minute. Let's chase a little rabbit here. You see what he says? He says, in these days. In these days. When are the last days? There's a lot of confusion over the last days. When the Bible speaks of the last days, are, are they speaking of the weeks before Jesus comes back? No. They're speaking, if, if you want to find out when the last days are, well, we see it right here. We know that Paul was speaking back in the first century, and he says, these last days. And, and so the last days, if you look at the book of Joel chapter 2, if you look at Acts chapter 2, I'm not going to go back there and exegete that today, but these last days begin at Pentecost, and they end when Jesus Christ returns. Now, I tell you that because people all the time will grab these passages where it speaks of the last days, and they will act as if, that hey, you can take this passage and, and measure what's happening today, and, and you can determine that we're in the last days. Well, you're, we are in the last days. You are living in the last days, but Paul was living in the last days. The last days were the days when, when Jesus could come at any minute, and he could have come at any minute back in, the first, when, back in the first century. Let me give you an example. Go back a few books, to, uh, and I'm sure you, if you're into prophecy, I'm sure you've seen this used by, by these prophecy gurus. Go back to just a few books to 2 Timothy and look in chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Everybody there? Just look at a few verses here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 1. He says, but know this, that in the last days, you see that there? The last days. Perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Boy, does that sound like today? Does that sound like the United States of America? Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Does that sound like today? Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slandering, without self-control, brutal, despisers of God, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, that fits our time perfectly. And so what these prophecy guys do, they come in here and they pick up this passage and they say, look, see, the last days. The last days, things are going to be like this. Well, was Paul speaking of our time or was he speaking of his time? He was speaking of the time from Pentecost till the time Jesus Christ comes back. Men are going to be lovers of themselves. That's just a description of mankind right there. 
There's nothing new under the sun. Men and women have always been like that. We've always loved ourselves. We've always been traitors and haughty and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Look at any society and it's been like that. So when somebody tells you Jesus is coming back next week because, because hey, man, look, we're in perilous times, and that means that Jesus is coming back next week. Man, people love money more than they love God. Well, that doesn't mean that Jesus is coming back next week. But I've got some good news for you. We're a lot closer to his return than Paul was. And we're in the very last days. And the things are going to, when Christ comes back, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. People are going to be doing business. They're going to be going to and fro. And they're going to be having weddings and parties and doing just what they did before. So you can't really measure that time by wars and rumors and wars and by how people are acting. Because people have always acted like that. There's always been earthquakes. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. Now those things will increase as we get closer and closer to the time to that time, but I don't know that things could have been any worse than they were in Paul's day. Read about that society. I remember going to Pompeii when I was uh, in college and looking at the art on the walls, and you talk about the most decadent stuff you've ever seen, the most pornographic stuff you've ever seen. It was right there. So nothing's changed. It's been like that throughout time. All right, so anyway, he says, in these last days, from the time of Pentecost, from the time Jesus died on the cross and said it was, it was is finished, in these last days he's spoken to us through Jesus Christ, not so much through the prophets. Whom, now, how has he spoken to us by Jesus Christ? How has he spoken to us by Jesus Christ? How does he speak to you by Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we, we read the Gospels and we see his life, the life that he lived. Now, a lot of people, that's the only way they see Jesus, by the life that he lived. And I feel sorry for them because they're missing the boat. I mean, yeah, he lived a wonderful life. But we also see Jesus. He speaks to us by what? By how? By his word. By this word that we're looking at. Who inspired the prophets. We'll go to 1 Peter and it says Jesus inspired the prophets. Who inspired Paul? The epistles that we read. Remember Jesus and Paul went out in the desert for three years and he received revelation directly from Jesus Christ. And so all the words that we have in the Bible come to us by Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. He was the Logos. I mean, so in the beginning uh, we've, we hear from Jesus Christ. How else do we hear how else has the Son spoken to us? He speaks to us by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit that lives in you is the Spirit of Christ. And so He speaks to us by His Spirit. And He also speaks to us by words of knowledge, by, by prophecy, uh, uh, and, and through providence. So there's other ways that He speaks to us as He's spoken throughout history. But now He speaks to us by His Son. All right, now, so... In, in verse number two, it says, He has spoken to us in these last days by His Son. Now watch what we see next. Uh, to me, this is absolutely amazing. Whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He made the world. You catch that? The eons, all the ages, all the material, all the time, everything has been made by Him. He's the heir of all things. What does it mean he's the heir of all things? Everything doesn't belong to nature. 
as we were told earlier. Everything belongs to Jesus Christ. That means you and I belong to Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. The, earth, the heavens and the earth belong to him. He is the great I am, not nature. He's the I am. Why does it belong to him? Why does it all, everything belong to him? Well, guess what? He made it all. Doesn't it seem logical if he made it all? I mean, that it would belong to him? Doesn't that seem logical? I mean, Colossians 1.16, all things. All, th all means what in the Greek? All. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. In John 1.3, it says, nothing was made that he didn't make. All things were made by him. We're not talking about I'm talking about all the raw materials of this earth, all humanity, all animal life, all of nature. Every bit of it was made by him. Material things, spiritual things, things on heaven, things on earth, things visible, invisible. No one but God can claim to have made all things. No prophet could claim, make that claim. Only God himself. Well, guess what? I've got news for you. He is God himself. Look, look at what Paul says, Nick, and here we're going to get some really deep stuff. I mean, look at verse number three. I mean, just look at verse number three. I mean, let me read it and, and see if you can grasp it all in just about 30 seconds. Here we go. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. You get all that? You get all that down? You, got, you understand every bit of that? Who being the brightness of his glory. David, could you do me a favor and maybe cut the air conditioner on? Are y'all hot in here? Or is it just me? Y'all not hot? Leave it off if they're not hot. Man, I'm sweating. I guess because I'm looking at this verse. Somebody else want to exegete this? I mean, you talk about some major theology wrapped up in one verse. It's right here. It'll change the way you see Jesus Christ hanging on that cross. Who being the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself, by himself, Purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Well, man, we got to break that down and look at it. Jesus is the brightness of his glory. Literally, what that means, he is the outshining of God the Father. Like the rays of the sun or the outshining of the sun. The S-O-N, the sun, is the radiance of God. Now, ask, let me ask you a question. Are the sun's rays a creation of the sun? No, they're part of the sun. Jesus is not a creation of the Father. He is the Father. He's the outshining of the Father. Now, what happens to you as a human being if you look at the sun? 
What will happen to you if you stare at the sun? You'll go, you can't look at the sun. You'll go blind. But we can look at the sun's rays. We're looking at the sun rays right now coming through, that, through those doors back there. We can see the light it produces. We can feel the warmth of the sun. But we can't look directly into the sun. You know what the Bible says about looking at God? No one has seen God the Father at any time lest they die. If you look directly at God the Father, you would be absorbed. He's our Lord, our God is a consuming fire. You remember when, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's parents and they realized that they had seen God. Manoah said, surely we will die, we have seen God. But they didn't die. And they did see God. Why didn't they die? Because they, were, they weren't looking at God the Father. They were looking at the Son. They were looking at the outshining of God. They were looking at the radiance of God's glory when they saw Jesus Christ. See, we see God the Father through Jesus Christ. We see His light. We feel His warmth. And that's, you know, the reason we see Him through Jesus Christ is because they're the same. That's why Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And I heard love people to dance around that translation. They try to turn it into something else. But one in the Greek means what? One, the same. I and the Father are the same essence. Jesus is begotten from the Father. We're going to see later on in the book of Hebrews. He wasn't created by the Father. He is the Father. Now that's just one little piece there. Look at the next part. Next, he tells us he is the express image of his person. His person. You get that? You know, Trinitarians love to talk about three persons. And again, in hyper-Trinitarianism, those three persons become three distinct individuals with their own thoughts, with their own ways, and, and they just kind of get together like in that silly illustration I gave earlier. But this, the, Paul tells us here that he is the express image of the person of the Father. Man, get that down. What he's saying is, here is he is the exact image of God's person. The Greek word is, for that phrase, express image, is actually one word. And it's the word character. Character. But it has a K instead of a C in the Greek. How fitting is that? Paul, what Paul is saying here, Jesus is the character of God. What is character? What is your character? You ever thought about your character? What is your character? Your character is who you are. It's who you are. I mean, I... And, and, so Jesus is the character of God. Who is God whom we haven't seen? He is Jesus whom we have seen. When you see Jesus, you see God. That word was used to describe the image on a coin. The express image on a coin. On a Roman coin... You had the image of Caesar stamped on that coin. And 
Whose image was that? Was that the image of his son? Was that the image of somebody else? Who was that the image of? It was the image of Caesar. And so it's like Jesus is, the Father is stamped on Jesus. He is the express image of Jesus. Let me see if I can clear this up with a little bit of an illustration. I have a lot of people that say Nathan looks exactly like me. Lucky guy. But that's not true. And he said, thank the Lord. He does look like me. I think Eli looks a little bit like me, more like his mom. But he doesn't look just like me, does he? There are similarities, but he is not the express image of me. We're a different individual. We are a different person. He's not the express image of my person. His character is different. I mean, when I say character, who he is is different from who I am. I mean, there are a lot of similarities. We both believe in the same God and worship the same God. But, but we're different. Now, you want to see the express image of me, you need to look at my driver's license. Beautiful picture. I'll sell it to you if you want a copy. But that's the express image. You see what's being said here? You see the distinction that's being made? Jesus isn't like God. He's not a creation of God. He's not an emanation of God. He is God. He is the Father. He's the express image of the Father. Jesus is God, the Father in the flesh, and he's there for in the flesh so he can relate to his creation that he created, so he can relate to you and me. That's why Jesus said, when Philip asked him, Philip, show us the Father. What was Jesus' answer? If you, Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't know the answer to that? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father's. Now, you know the prophets, just like us, they were created in the image of God, but they were not created in the express image of God. They were a creation. Jesus is not a creation. He is the express image of God, the Father's person. Now, next, and he upholds all things. What's all mean in the Greek? He upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 declares that in Jesus all things consist. Or you could say literally, he holds all things together. How does he hold them together? By his power. Word. You know, if you look at the most basic unit of matter, it's the atom. And the atom has a positively charged neutron. And it has, a negatively, it has negatively charged protons that circle around that neutron. Now, the age-old question that has baffled physicists for centuries, and they'll never figure it out unless they go to the Bible, is what if you've got opposing forces so strong that if you split that atom that you can cause a nuclear explosion, there's so much power in that atom, what is holding those opposing forces together? It's not a what, it's a who. Jesus Christ holds all things together. I mean, by his word, he holds all things together. 
By his word, he spoke the universe into existence. He spoke those atoms into existence. He spoke those molecules into existence. And by his word, he holds all things together now. You know, not only does he hold the atoms together, he holds the stars together. He holds the tides. He controls the tides. He, he controls the weather. I know there's this thing about global warming. It might be getting warmer. Seems pretty warm in here to me today. It might be getting warmer. But if it's getting warmer, blame Jesus. He did it. Don't blame carbon emissions. Blame Jesus Christ. We certainly should take care of our environment, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm kind of in the middle on some of those things. But, but man, this idea of somehow that Barack Obama is going to end global warming—that's not going to happen. If God wants to turn up the heat, ain't nobody going to stop it. And the worse the society gets, the more He's going to turn up the heat. He holds all things together. But now He makes a promise in Genesis, doesn't He? That there will be winter and there will be springtime. And there'll be summer and there'll be fall until he returns. And so, hey, we've got that. We, and we can trust the fact that he's going to hold all things together. But he doesn't just hold the weather together. He doesn't just hold the tides back. He doesn't just hold the atoms together. He holds societies and nations together. Man, it looks, right now, it looks like right now our nation is imploding right before our very eyes. What's keeping it from collapsing? He holds all things together. He holds societies together. He holds nations together. And if and let me tell you what, you look at some of the hot spots around the world right now, you realize the Ukraine war could break out in a nuclear war tomorrow? Russians have been buzzing our, our, our shorelines with nuclear-armed uh, uh, airplanes. They've got nuclear subs sitting out on our, all over our coastline. You realize that that war could break out tomorrow and we could all be destroyed? Who holds, that, who holds that back? Who holds our nation together? Jesus Christ holds our nation together. You look at what's going on in the Middle East right now. What's preventing ISIS from just taking over that whole land? It's not our few bombs we're dropping. Jesus holds all things together. And there's a restraining power that's here on earth, and it's the power of Jesus Christ, the power of his Holy Spirit. And one day that power is going to be removed, and then all hell's going to break out on this earth. And we're going to go into the great tribulation. But you know what? I can trust him now. Hey, you know what? When that happens, I'm going to be out of here. I don't know about you. Because he has the power by his word to take me, beam me up, Scotty, and get me out of here. It's called the rapture. But until he does that, I can be sure that he holds all things together. Man, if he holds the universe together, he keeps the stars in their place, he keeps this earth out, hung out in space at a perfect distance from the sun. Mother Nature didn't do that. I got news for you. Because if we were a mile further away, we would all freeze. If we were a mile closer, we would all burn up. It's hung perfectly out there in space. It hangs there and it rotates. Just luck, right? Jesus holds all of that together. Now, if he holds all of that together and keeps that from imploding, don't you think he can keep my life from imploding if I'll give it to him? 
Don't you think he can keep my marriage from imploding? My family from imploding? You know, the reason we see things imploding all around us, families and homes and, and marriages, is because we don't give it to the Lord. I mean, the, and he gives us a choice. You want to destroy yourself? Go right ahead. It's amazing. I don't know about you, but my life was one big implosion before the Lord got a hold of my life. It's by his grace that he held my life together long enough for me to get saved and get changed. Man, he can do that for you. He holds all things together by the power of his word. Boy, that's, there's a lot of that. And then look at the very last phrase here. He says, when he had by himself, not, nobody helped him. He treaded the wine press alone. Nobody helped him. By himself. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. I mean, he didn't sit down on one of the two thrones in heaven, as some hyper-Trinitarians will tell you, that there's a throne for the Father and there's a throne for the Son. There's only one throne in heaven. Those of you that make it there one day, you'll get to see that throne. The throne of God. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. That right hand is symbolic of the fact that he is the one who exercises the will of the Father. He is the Father's right hand. He is the Father incarnate in a body. The Father is everywhere. The Son is on a throne. Right now, if our eyes were open, and it's not as far away from here as you think, if God would split open this dimension and you could see into heaven, you could see Jesus sitting there on his throne in glory. Sitting there. He sat down. Why did he sit down? Because it is finished. He sat down because he had purged us of our sins. He had done all he could ever do for us to be saved. He'd done it all. And so he sat down on the throne of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's sitting there right now. Man. Those are some bold statements. I mean, those are some really bold statements. He's greater than the prophets. He made all things. He, he made the worlds. He's the... He's the brightness of the Father's glory. He's the express image of his person. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And by himself, you can't add anything to it. By himself, he purged us of our sins. Well, you can believe that if you want to. I don't necessarily have to believe that, someone might say. What makes you right? And Julia Roberts, wrong. What makes you right and the Pope wrong about who Jesus is? What makes you right and the Mormons wrong? Let me give you one word. One word. Faith. Faith. My faith is not some blind hope that I have. 
My faith is as real as this podium is. Just as real. If you don't have that faith, that's because you don't know the Lord. But when you get to know the Lord, you'll have that faith. And it will be as real to you as my faith is real to me. And I'll, you'll know that you know that you know that what these words spoken right here in the first part of Hebrews are absolutely true. Turn with me over for just a minute as we finish up to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to do like Paul did in Philippians. About halfway through his message, he said, in conclusion, finally. Then he went three more chapters, and he said, finally. Then he went another chapter, and he finished his book. Actually, this is getting close to the conclusion. Look at uh, chapter 11, verse number 2. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Logos. Who's the Logos? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. They were framed by the Word of God. I, Jesus spoke, and the worlds came into existence. Do you believe that? Well, tough if you don't, because you're wrong if you don't. You can believe Julia Roberts' thing if you want to. And you can go stab your teacher and justify it. Don't do that. So that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. They were made of atoms that were spoken into existence. See, by faith, we believe that Jesus created the universe and everything in the universe, that he's the heir of all things. By faith, we believe that he's the express image of God. By faith, we believe that he holds all things together. By faith, we believe that when he had sat down after he himself had purchased us of our sins, that he sat down on the throne of glory. By faith, we believe that. And where does that faith come? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. This is the word of God. You'll never have that faith if you don't get into the word of God. If you don't know the word of God. The word of God, the Logos, is Jesus Christ himself. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Logos of God. It comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from the words that he spoke in this Bible. It comes from the words that he speaks by his Holy Spirit. And if you'll receive those words and submit to those words and read those words, then you'll have the same faith. And you'll know that you know that you know that all of this is true because you'll have the Holy Spirit living in you just like I have living in me. But if you're a believer here today and you do have the Spirit of God, by your faith, you should have come to a place where you realize just who it was that purged you of your sins.
Who purged you of your sins? God Almighty, Jehovah God purged you of your sins. Let me ask you a question. What can you add to the work of Jesus Christ? Absolutely nothing. And, and you can say, well, I'm not trying to add to it, but we're all trying to add to it. We all get involved in legalistic ways that, that, that say, Lord, you didn't quite do enough. I'm going to help you with this. No, when you see who it is that died for your sins by himself, then you're humble and you're in awe of the fact that God would die for you. That the great Savior of the great Creator became your Savior. You understand that? The great Creator, the one who created you, became your Savior. That the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last, the Beginning, the End, the Almighty God, the one who created us, the one who holds all things together, held the atoms of the nails together as he hung there on a cross for you and I. The one who sits now in majesty on high is the one who died for you and I. Do you realize that when they went to nail him there on that cross, that he was holding the atoms of those nails together. And all he had to do is by his word say, let go. And those nails would disintegrate it, probably blown up everybody around. And he could have walked away. And if somebody had tried to stop him, remember what happened in the garden when he said, I am? They all fell backwards. By his word, all he had to do if somebody tried to stop him was just release the molecules that held them together and they would have been destroyed. But he held all of that together. He held the wood together. He held it all together. God. So he could die for you and me. And he purged our sins. Only God could do that. Only God could purge you of your sins. Only God could cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. Let me ask you a question. What are you saying to Jesus Christ if you believe in a purgatory? A purgatory. He didn't do enough. He didn't do enough. If you believe that somehow confession gets rid of your sin, you're saying he didn't do enough. If you believe somehow that you've got to do some kind of ministry work to get him to, to love you, then he didn't do enough. No, he did enough. He by himself, God Almighty, purged you of your sins. Mary couldn't do that. A created God couldn't do that. A prophet couldn't do that. Only Jehovah God, only Jesus Christ could do that. And we thank you, Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you. Again, we've climbed up on a theological mountain way past anything we can fully understand, Lord. But we thank you for the truths that are here. That our great creator became our savior. Lord, that you looked down on pitiful mankind 
and you implemented the plan laid before the foundation of the world, before you even created us, before you even spoke the worlds into existence. Lord, you implemented that plan to die for our sins, to give us eternal life, to give us a hope and a future. Lord, there's no words good enough, eloquent enough to thank you for what you've done for us. If there's anybody here, Lord, in this room that doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, I ask today that they take a step in that direction and they open your word and begin to read your word. And the faith, the things they don't believe, they will then believe, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. I ask today that you draw them to you and that today begins the day of their salvation as they look to Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you for your word and what you teach us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.